to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Nikki Six, who is best known for being the bass player and primary songwriter for the legendary rock band Motley Crue. And although Motley Crue still tours, he also has another successful band called 6AM. If you've read Nikki's first book, The Heroin Diaries, or you've seen the movie The Dirt, you know that he spent years battling addiction. Fortunately, he's now sober, and he's written a new book called The First 21. In it, he describes how his childhood shaped him. From his father leaving when he was young to moving around a lot of times, his childhood left some deep scars. But he's learned how to work through the pain to become a better person. Some of the things he talks about today are how he now looks at his childhood differently, how he got sober, and the steps he's taking to overcome the adversity he faced. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Nikki's mental strength building strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Nikki Six on how overcoming a rough childhood can become an opportunity to grow mentally stronger. Nikki Six, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Hello. Nice to see you, Amy. It's so good to see you. It's great to talk to you. Uh, I've been a Motley Crue fan for a very, very long time. So how wonderful to be able to talk to you. And it was great to be able to read your book and hear the backstory. I knew yeah, thank you. Um, I'd seen the movie The Dirt. I knew about the heroin diaries. I've heard of those sorts of stories. But yeah. in this book, you decided to talk about your childhood. What made you decide to do that? Well, it, it was an interesting thing. I had uh, done a few books and I really enjoyed the process. And I always try to think of something that might inspire somebody else through uh, positive things that I've done and maybe mistakes that we've all made. And I was thinking, you know, being young and the stuff that we learn along the way and how those first 21 years, something in those first 20 years, in 21 years, uh, you, you have an aha moment, like whether you're Magic Johnson or Bill Gates or Keith Richards, there's probably a moment where you're like, this, this is what I want to do with my life. We, we live, we have a, a lot of property. We live in Wyoming. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And I was sitting on the back of the property on this rock, literally sitting on this rock. And uh, there's this huge bull elk was stand, was like on this uh, right below me. It, it, it looked like uh it looked like something out of like a, a wildlife, you know, uh, TV show or something. And I was just sitting there and looking at the mountains. And I, I realized as the crow flies, I'm only two hours from where I grew up as a boy. And it's very familiar to me living in Wyoming. And a lot of feelings came up. And I had this fleeting thought where I thought, um, where did everybody go? And I came house and I, I wrote this little couplet and I said, um, once I started flying, I forgot how to stop. And I started writing this poem to my family. And then I was like, well, maybe I should just go back and 
actually explore all of our, our family and how I got here, but how they got to where they were at and what impact had on me emotionally and spiritually, how it allowed me to, uh, to do what I do now. You know, there's so much in it when you start to dive into those aha moments and discovery of music and coming of age. And um, that was kind of the idea. And I was like, well, let's make it end like literally the day I changed my six, which was three months before I formed Motley Crue. So it's almost like a, a mic drop. Like it's like, bam, this is the end. We know the Motley Crue story. This was experience and how I got to be where I'm at today. A lot of people might not know that obviously you weren't born Nikki Six. You were born Frank and you grew up yeah. in the middle of nowhere, Idaho. Yeah. And didn't have the easiest childhood. That feels like a bit of an understatement to say as well. Yeah. Um, how, good. How did you turn it into an asset? Obviously, you overcame a lot of adversity, but I feel like you found ways to use that to your advantage. You know, I was thinking the other day about the fact that we moved off as a kid. And um, I was always the new kid in school. And it made me have a few different things that would develop time I was maybe a young teenager is I was shy. I felt like I didn't fit in. Uh, and maybe I didn't. I just didn't have an opportunity to really grow roots. And at one point in my life, I felt like I was a tumbleweed. I was just going from you know, city to city. And my grandparents uh, were amazing, but they were blue collar, really worked minimum wage. And they were trying to take care of this little boy. So we'd be in Texas and then we'd be in New Mexico and then we'd be in Lake Tahoe and then we'd be in Pocatello. And that's hard on a kid. And I, when I had kids, it was important for me not to do that, is to try and stay in one school district, in one area, let them develop relationships and evolve uh, as, you know, into young adults. It also made me shy in the way that I, uh, I, I had to find something else. And that something else was music and books. And I, it, I, I attributed to my creativity. It might have given me a kick in the ass for my creativity. Maybe it would have come earlier, but I was a daydreamer. Uh, something that's not in the book. And I just remember when we were in Anthony, New Mexico, and the, I would be looking out the, the window and the, the leaves would be falling. And I was a little kid, you know, and I would be writing these couplets and poems, and which later would become lyrics, right? I didn't know what I was doing. It's just something I was trying to document. And um, I remember getting in trouble for that. Like I wasn't doing my math work or whatever, which I should have been doing, but I couldn't focus on that. I wasn't interested in math. I wasn't, the only thing I was interested in was history. There's my dog. Uh, <laughs> Lucky he didn't knock my guitar over. That's the guitar I wrote, like the whole Dr. Feelgood album on. Right back really? There. Oh, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's still around. Right. And of course, it's not. It's just leaning against a wall, you know, it's waiting for its demise. So um, I, I, I started discovering very early that I was a date 
photographer and uh, I like to write a lot and I like to document. And when stuff would happen, I was that weird kid that had like a book under his arm and a pen, something, and I would run off and I would write it down. And then I started getting into, you know, rhyming and loose rhymes. I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't know what I was doing until uh, the discovery of music. I found that spark. I found that connection, something that was missing from being a tumbleweed. And uh, that's in the book, the part where the discovery of music, whether it's when I was in Falls and we were, uh, you know, living on this uh, on this ranch and I would call the radio station asking to hear a certain song over and over. Now that's just an annoying kid. That's just an annoying kid calling a local radio station asking to hear Big John by Jimmy Dean. In retrospect, why was I calling about that song and not other songs? Lyrics were a story. It's like Jim Croce. It's like, you know, uh, Leroy Brown, Big Bad Leroy Brown. You, I, I'm attracted to stories. So when you read the lyrics to Dr. Feelgood, think about this young kid living on a farm, calling this local radius, play this song. There was a story to it. And I started discovering books around that time. And um, so the discovery of music and words was a very important part of me, maybe breaking out of my shell a little bit. You know, I think your story could have been could have been written so many ways of the first 21 years to say it was it was awful. It was horrible. You really take it, though, in a direction to say, I learned a lot. And here's what I learned. Sure. And life wasn't easy. Did you always look at it that way? Or were there parts of your life where you thought this wasn't fair, that I wasn't dealt a better hand? Well, when I was when I was younger, I was um, my mom had downloaded uh, a lot of information into my brain about my father, and um, I learned to uh, despise him for abandoning me. And that, that really bubbled up in my teenage years. Come to find out through a lot of discovery, uh, my mom had her own um, issues, and that's the story that she had. Now, going back talking to family, they have a different story talking to my aunts and uncles and uh, my dad did leave. And it talks about in the book, we don't know why he left. I think there's a part of my mom told me the story that basically, you know, um, you know, I was born and my dad left. Uh, she left only a few years later uh, following suit. But I had a sister, uh, Lisa, who was born with Down syndrome. And talking to my aunt and uncle who are in their, their 80s now, and they were there when I was born and they were there when Lisa was born. My dad and my mom were determined to bring my sister home. And I was two. So like, you know, I can't really picture it. But from what I was, I was very excited to have a little sister. And um, she left. 11 months later, she was placed in a home and that's when my dad left. And my uncle says something made Frank, my dad, Frank, who was named after, very mad and he never came back again. I was with my aunt and uncle recently for his 90th birthday and we were talking and I was like, do you think it's the fact that Lisa 
was put into uh, a place, they, a home where they cared for her and she had a wonderful life. Um, and nobody knows. Nobody knows why he left, but he never came back. And then my mom left. And those, those, those scars uh, hurt me for a long time until I realized um, I'm, I'm not going to keep reliving this story. You know, this is their story. Yes, I'm part of the story, but um, it, it's really other people saying he's a bad guy and she's a bad guy. And you start to feel like, a, you know, start to feel good about yourself. And I, I think there was a part of my life where I was uh, successful in all the things that I was in love with, music. I was in a band, you know, I was touring the world. Something was wrong. And I think drug addiction uh, came on slowly through me, through alcoholism alcohol then alcoholism and then experimenting and it was the 80s and everybody had cocaine and quaaludes and i discovered heroin and i ended up uh, an addict which we wrote about in the heroin diaries and then finding recovery and it was through recovery that i was able to uh, do the work i said i am not my parents i'm not my parents in fact i'm I'm a father of five and I've tried everything to not be my parents, tried everything to um, not have them feel the way that I felt when I was younger. And what's interesting about feelings is, you know, you could slap me right now and it might hurt, but it might come up five years from now and be like, you know, I used to get slapped every day by, you know, Amy would slap me every day, whatever. It, that was annoying or I didn't like that or we never talked again, but it would then come up later. And um, all children, everybody has to go through stuff and their parents are doing their best, but you know, they're, they're going to do things that you're like, I don't believe in my uh, parents' political views, or I don't believe in this. Or I don't believe in that. And I wanted to be in a place where my kids were able to talk to me about, you know, my kids are different than me. They have different beliefs, they have different interests, they like different music, and but we're extremely close because they can tell me how they feel. And I never had an opportunity to really talk about it until I got into recovery. I can imagine then when you got into recovery, it must have hit you all at once to then have to deal oh, with Oh, it was these. like razor blades on my soul. Because uh, all of these things started popping up and I was like, that's not true. That can't be true. That's that... That messaging, that's not who I really am. I'm not that kind of person. You know, there's a song on, um, on the heroin series, Accidents Can Happen, and it's about um, relapse. And I have, I'm 20 years sober, uh, but at the time I had about four years sober and I relapsed. And I got a lot of people uh, saying to me, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get it right? You know, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and worse things. And I just remember writing that song with the guys at 6 a.m. about, you know, accidents do happen. We don't get it perfect the first time. You'd like to get it perfect the first time, especially in recovery. You don't want people to go in and out of recovery because there's, you know, the opportunity for, for death, um, which you see all the time is heartbreaking. So anyway, um, I, I've learned a lot in my first 21 years and since. Yeah. What made you go into recovery? Was there a moment? Was there something that sparked it? Or was it just you were tired? Huh. You were tired. That's 
it's really a, a big one. You know, the, the, we've all heard the saying, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, it got in the way of my music. I didn't have children at the time. It got in the way of my music. I, I, the only thing I cared about at that time in my life, a relationship that I was necessarily committed to. Uh, my band was my family. And I felt that that was going to, the thing that I loved the most was going to disband, break up, or I was going to get thrown out and who knows. And I was just like, this isn't, this isn't what I dreamed about when I was a teenager. I didn't dream about being an actor. I dreamt about being in, you know, a band like Aerosmith or Sabbath or Queen or to Ramones or the Dolls. I didn't dream about that. By removing that, I got to get back to the dream. And then did you have any fears that removing that would interfere with your creativity. I hear from so many people in the music industry who say, I wanted to be depressed because I think that that helped my music or I, yeah. because I had an addiction that helped me stay creative. Any concerns about that? I didn't feel like myself. I told this to my wife the other day. After I got clean and sober, I was like, what was I doing? That's not even really who I am. I wasn't that into the parties I wasn't that I used to have these parties at my house at the peak of my uh uh addiction and uh I would always end up in my bedroom alone writing I that's who I am you know at my core I'm an artist I like to write I like to create I like to paint I like to do photography so this this monster that was looming and taking over it, it actually I look back on it, I was like, that isn't even who I was. This is not even who I was. Uh, it's just something that was happening to me. And then I had to accept the fact that I'll be an addict for the rest of my life because I don't want a chance. Or in my case, also, if I was to ever use again, what would that do to all the people who might have discovered every uh, through some of my writings? It, it's, it's a huge responsibility. Everywhere I go, they hold that book up. You know, I'm, I'll be in Poland on stage and someone holds up the book and I see people with tears connected with it. They related to it. It was, they could relate to their father, their uncle, themselves. So um, the addiction is just not who I am, but it's something that happened to me. As it happened to many of the rock stars of your era, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how about now? You're a dad, you're a married man, you have this family life. How do you still stay creative? I'm more creative now than when I was using. I mean, in the, in the time that I've um, been sober, I've been involved with four books. Book. Um, I've written hundreds and hundreds of songs. I uh, formed a weird band. Uh, I, like to, I like projects, right? But I don't necessarily project big as Motley Crue. I don't want, I don't want that kind of commitment. So I'm like, you know, I got this idea. And one of the ideas was this band called 58. It was me and this other guy, Dave Darling. It was like James Brown meets, uh, you know, William Burroughs. And there was like talking and then like, like big background R&B parts and then like heavy guitar didn't fit a genre like early way before nine inch nails way before any of this kind of stuff because i'm an artist i wanted to create something and i didn't think about uh, money 
So it's to me, this book started out, the idea was to possibly write a book on uh, finance for artists, uh, athletes, people that come into money quickly and don't know how to manage it or have any kind of a, of a um, track record, a family that knows how to help them manage their money. And the reason I'm talking about that is if you know how to manage your money, no matter how big or how small, it's about cash flow. So if you're living in a mansion and you're making, well, you're in that mansion. And what's scary is, yeah, you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your car. You're going to lose that stability. But you're also going to lose the ability to create, to play football, to basketball player, to be a writer, to be a, uh, on television, to be a musician. So I started thinking about that. Um, 58 is a great example of that. I, I've managed my finances and um, I was able to do that. And it, and it wasn't what I would call successful, but I have a lot of pride in it. And there was, uh, uh, I got myself lyrically and into a genre that I don't usually do. Then the next project I did was a project called Brides of Destruction. I took that band around. I toured a bunch of festivals for like six months. And it was kind of punk rock, what I grew up with. That was a lot of fun for me. Motley Crue is on hiatus. And um, and then, you know, Motley Crue, we went back to doing Motley Crue. And then I did uh, 6 a.m. And that's a, a, you know, 10, 12 year experience. But we kind of keep um, kind of keep control over it, not turning into a bigger monster than it needs to be like non-stop so I'm not here for my family then I got to go back to Motley Crue because I managed my finances I'm able to do this creative thing which is now turned into a song that's inspired by the book so I I've always just been creative and when you take um substance abuse anxiety depression focus on and just keep growing as a person like I I uh, you know, meditation is a big part of my life. Um, I have a rule that, you know, you question, and if I'm not sure I need 24 hours, I take time. I didn't used to do that when I was younger, but all of it's a, you are growing. And if you're in the right place, you can keep to create. You can keep creating. And, so, and I love that. I, I love that you said all of that too, because I absolutely agree when it comes to, we need a, to feel safe in life in order to do a lot of things. One way to feel safe is to make sure you have enough money that you can eat tomorrow and then you can, you have the freedom to be more creative. You can do it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I also have to say when I was listening to Motley Crue back in the day, I would have never thought I'd be sitting across from Nikki Six hearing your financial advice along with your your thoughts on, on how to stay creative and how to do these things. Yeah. So it's just yeah. amazing uh, to be able to be here. One Thank last you. question for you would be for somebody maybe who had a difficult childhood and they haven't felt like they have worked through it, through the pain. Yeah. What would your yeah. advice or your thoughts be to that person? Well, um, first of all, work is exciting. If you're ready, you know, you want to feel better, do better, be better uh, in whatever part of your life that that is. I think that the hard work which can be uh, awe-inspiring. 
finding these aha moments, it's like, oh, wow, that's why, that's why I had that Italian temper, you know, bottled up anger at my family. Um, maybe it drove me to write Shout at the Devil. Maybe it, you know, drove me in a lot of ways. But it's uh, necessary baggage at this point. You know, it's like I, I suggest putting the, the baggage down. <laughs> And seeing what it like feels like to not be carrying around all this crap because uh, it gets heavy. And as we get older, we, uh, you know, we get more of it, you know, because life, life keeps coming at you. So how do you see life? It will determine how you react to it. And I put a lot of work in for that. I, I have a lot of difficult personalities that I work with. I have wonderful personalities. And I'm able to look at situations and go, okay, how can I help everybody to be successful in what they're trying to do? Or how can I go that extra mile and maybe write a book that might inspire somebody else? It's, it's about putting the work in. It really is about putting the work in. And I'd say to anybody out there, don't be scared of the work. If you go to a therapist, it's not like you gotta, you're a bad person. You're like going to someone and you're saying, look, um, I got A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and I keep repeating it, and I'm 35 years old, and I am sick of this. Well, go to somebody that can help you peel back the onion, peel back the onion. I'm still peeling the damn onion. I find stuff every day about myself. But also, the thing I would say is writing is very important. Journaling is very important. So um, one of the things that I do is I write down at the end of the day what my day was about and what I could have done better. So at the end of the day, I'll be like, yeah, I kind of like lost it. No reason there. And I want to I want to work on that. I want to look at that. So you can go back and look at your journaling and be like, you know, I'm making progress or I'm not making progress. And then get and then get in and you know, roll get a little dirty. You're gonna have a good life. It's gonna be all good. So happy you said all that. I happen to be a therapist, so I get to work with lots of people when they reach those aha moments. And I have no doubt that your book is going to help people see a lot of the connections in your life, but it might also help them make connections in their life about their childhood. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, this is what I learned as a kid. Doesn't serve me yeah. well as an adult. This is how I can change it. Or this is how I can retell the same story in a slightly different way that serves yes. me well now. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. That's great that you do that. And that's exactly right. I love that, you know, uh, retell the story in ways that can serve me now. Right. You know, by, by, by me talking about my dad, it just frees me of my dad. I also um, found this picture of my dad in 19, it's in the book, uh, 1953. Um, he's in the country. He's got a bird dog and he's got some pheasant in the back of his vehicle. I don't know what it was back then, like the back patched open. And uh, and he's there he is. That's my dad. And I got a picture of myself, the same thing, like kind of out in a field with my dog. And uh, he's my dad. You know, I'm my son and my son's and daughter's dad. And um, we got to retell that story and, and reframe it and look at it and say, you know, how can I see him differently? His struggles, he had his issues. What was it like for him to have 
um, a mom who is diff- a wife who is difficult, um, a son, a young son, which was very important to him being Sicilian, Sicilian men, a lot of men, it's very important to name uh, their son, their first son after them. So I was named after him. And what was it like to have a daughter with Down syndrome and difficult situation to be in and how did he handle it? And maybe I can have a little bit of, uh, you know, just, just see him a little differently, you know, he's not, he was just doing the best he could do. Sure. He probably made mistakes, but I've made a share of my own mistakes too. Thank you for sharing all of that. I so appreciate yeah. that you were on our show and I know that your book is going to help a lot of people too. Thank you very much. Thanks. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. You as well. Um, again, just thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Okay. I'll talk to you. Bye. Right. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Nikki's strategies that I really liked and how using them might help you grow mentally stronger too. Number one, don't believe all the stories you were told. I love that Nikki talked about how he realized that the stories he heard about his dad weren't actually his dad's story. It was his mom's stories about his dad. And of course, she had her own take on why his dad left and what kind of person his dad was. Once Nikki started working through some of the things that happened to him during his childhood, he realized that there's more than one version of the same story. He chose to start thinking about how his dad might tell the same story, but in a different way. It changed his mindset a bit about the stories he'd believed. This is really important to consider. We're all told stories from our parents about our family history. Those stories may play a big role in how you see yourself, how you view other people, and how you view the world in general. It can be helpful to remember that the version of the story you're hearing is through your parents' lens. There are definitely other versions of the same story. Number two, establish a safe environment so you can be creative. I appreciate that Nikki talked about the fact that he needs to have his basic needs met in order to be the most creative version of himself. I've worked with a lot of people over the years who are afraid of losing their edge. They sort of liked couch surfing because they thought it made them eccentric. Or they worried that contributing to a retirement account meant they were old and boring. And while as a therapist, I can try to explain Maslow's hierarchy of needs and try to tell people that they'll feel better and do better when they don't have to worry about their basic needs like food and shelter, it's different when the information comes from somebody like Nikki Six. Clearly, he knows this firsthand. He's been through tough times when he's literally had nothing. Now he's living a much more comfortable life and he's no longer using mood-altering substances. But he says he's more creative than ever. And he said all this as he sat and talked to me from his home where he has a leopard print carpet and his guitar leaning against the wall. But he says he's freer than ever to create new music and to launch new projects now that he has safety in his life. So if you've ever been afraid of losing your edge, consider that having your needs met could free you up to be even better than before. And number three, use a journal to connect the dots. The most common strategy our guests use to stay mentally strong seems to be journaling. But they use journaling in slightly different ways. Some of them write in a gratitude journal. Others use a journal as a way to sort out their feelings. Nikki uses a journal to connect some of the dots in his life. He says it helps him look back on where he's been and helps him see his progress. And while he says he talks to a therapist to really understand himself better, journaling is also really helpful. So you might find that writing down your thoughts, your feelings, or the story of your life is kind of therapeutic as well. 
You could pick a certain theme, like writing about the times in your life when you reached your goals or times when you've struggled the most. Over time, you'll likely recognize patterns that help you grow stronger and become better. Or you could simply just write about your day-to-day activities and your feelings. Then when you look back, you'll be able to see how your thinking has changed or how your ability to manage uncomfortable emotions has grown. It can be helpful to see that you're making progress because sometimes it happens so slowly that we don't even notice it unless we go back to a journal and see where we were just a few months ago. So those are three of Nikki's strategies that I highly recommend. Don't believe all the stories you were told. Establish a safe environment so you can be creative. And use a journal to connect the dots in your life. If you want to learn more about Nikki's childhood and the steps he's taking to work through his emotional pain, pick up a copy of The First 21. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.